Again, as Pastor Ben has already said, we are so glad that you all can be here this morning. I am glad that I can trade places with Ben this morning as well and be with you. Our hope in being here and you sitting in that seat right now with that coffee is that God's word finds you where you're at and changes you as you allow him and his word to do that. And as a teaching group, uh, Pastor Ben and myself and the other pastors would like you to know what you're getting into if you're here this morning. And at this time, we want you to know that we are a Bible teaching church. And what that means is we go through the Bible together and week after week we'll work through some specific scripture, some specific passages in scripture. And if you've been here the past two weeks for this Connecting the Dots series, you've heard Pastor Ben mention that the series that we're in for this entire month of January is a little bit more topical. So from time to time we'll take this approach, but to remind you the reason that we've named this series Connecting the Dots is because we believe that it is time to connect the dots from what we know about Jesus, what you might know about God's word, those things that we've heard, maybe those things that we've learned biblically from our parents. We take all of that and hopefully connect the dots for deep, deep life change. And again, we've been learning this phrase week by week that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's absolutely inseparable. Emotional health and spiritual maturity go hand in hand, meaning it's impossible for you and I to claim that we are spiritually mature, that we're spiritually mature individuals, yet emotionally immature in every way. And God desires to change every single part of who we are for his intended purposes in our lives. In the last two weeks, we've worked our way through what it takes to be spiritually mature. So what does that look like? What does that sound like in the life of someone who claims to be a born-again Christian? So the first week of the series was centered around spiritually mature emotions, highlighting Jesus and the fact that before he himself did any great work, he met with God. That's what he did. That's who he was. Before he did any great work for God, he met with God. He met with God in heartache. He met with God in anger. And it was with compassion that we heard a couple of stories. It was with compassion that he even raised people from the dead. He did those things and he was able to do those things as he met God with his emotions. And we can do the same. We have to know that if we look at Jesus, then we too can do those same things. When we feel hurt or we, when we feel shame or even as we feel lust, we, we feel those emotions and we can express them to God. And he will meet us there. When you go to the grocery store now and when you see the price of a carton of eggs matching your monthly house payment and you lose your marbles, you can meet God there and he will meet you. Ben stole my egg joke already. And last week, we learned how the Bible teaches that our family of origin is wildly important. We learn to love and we learn to trust and we learn how to build connections with other people or how not to do those things with other people from our families. And the Bible makes it very clear that we are made new, that when we come to Christ and salvation, old things and bad habits and some learned behaviors have to go. That if we know Christ fully, then those things that we've learned from our family of origin, those bad habits, those old things, those hang-ups, those have to go. 
meaning we cannot make peace with others until we make peace with our past. We have to put to death some of those things from our past family of origin. Very few of us emerge from that family that we were born into fully, fully whole and fully mature. Very few of us do that. So through the story of Joseph, Pastor Ben gave us this challenge, the challenge to become a carrier of blessing to the next generation by reinterpreting our story in light of God's story. That's the only way it works, that we reinterpret our story in light of God's story. That's how we become a carrier of blessing to the next generation. And just as God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, again, take the blessing that you find in the garden and multiply that blessing from generation to generation. And he said the same thing to Abraham later on. And that truth still stands for us. It still holds this massive weight. It changes the course of how others live as we choose or choose not to participate in this as we understand that God is with us. And now this morning with all of that in view, in view of being hopefully emotionally mature in Christ, in view of our need to pass on generational blessings and move away from a broken family origin, in view of all this, we still have to go deeper. And maybe even we have to go back in a way because there's another wildly important part of the story here that we need to talk about biblically. And if we are to view this series, I, I thought about this, this series as kind of like a train, like my, my daughter calls trains, choo-choo trains. If we're gonna view this series as a, a train, what we will talk about today is gonna be that locomotive. It, it's what keeps everything going. It what, it's what makes things go because you cannot and you will not become emotionally mature for Christ. You will not be able to connect the dots for Christ. And you will not be able to break away from your family of origin without this. So today we talk about love. I don't know if you could pick up a theme of the songs that we were singing this morning. Today we're going to talk about love. And we couldn't wait till Valentine's Day. This talk has to happen now. And if we ever hope to be spiritually mature, we have to let this happen. We have to let love be the measure of our maturity. If we're going to be mature in Christ whatsoever, then we have to let love be the measure of that maturity. David Benner says this, that love is the acid test of Christian spirituality. If Christian conversion is authentic, we are in the process of becoming more and more loving. And then here's the tension. If we are not becoming more loving, something is seriously wrong. So again, that's a question that hopefully you can ask yourselves as we work through this scripture this morning. Am I becoming more loving? Is that my aim in life? Is that what I'm doing for my Savior? Am I becoming more loving? Because that's it, right? That's the acid test of Christian spirituality. Are we becoming more loving? Love is that measure. And so what does God's word say about this? So as far as scripture for you all this morning, we'll primarily be in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. If you want to turn there, you can be finding that. And also I'd like to give you on the screen here in a second, just a breakdown of some points that we'll be in, just so you know where we're headed with this. So this morning we kind of have this who, what, when, where, why breakdown with the scripture. And, and more specifically, we'll talk about these things. So first, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. What is love? That's what I was saying all week. What is love? We have to define love biblically. If we're going to know how to love God and eventually 
right, love our neighbor, then we have to know what biblical love looks like. We have to define biblical love. And then secondly, who are we supposed to love? That scripture kind of makes it pretty clear, but it goes deeper than that. So who are we supposed to love? We're supposed to love, and you'll see, God and our neighbor. God first and then our neighbor. That's how that flows. And then we'll look at the how of loving God and our neighbor. How do we love those people? Again, we know the people, but how do we love them? How do we actually love God? What does that look like lived out in our life with Christ? And how do we love that person next to you? How do you love that person? What does that look like? So we'll answer the how. And then finally, why? Why as Christ followers are we commanded to love? Why do we do this? What is the worth in Jesus telling us this? Why is Jesus so persistent in making us understand, hopefully showing us that we, we can understand the message of love? Why is it so important to him? Why do we see it all throughout the Bible? Why is it mentioned so many times in the New Testament? So again, first, we'll work on defining what love is. That's what we have to do first. But before we get to our scripture, I wanted to show you all a video of what kids say that love is. No sound. That's okay. So they basically say they don't know what love is and they say funny things. So there you go. So Matthew 22, if you're there, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. We'll read this and we'll break this scripture down as we go. So let's read verses 34 and 35 together of Matthew 22. It says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. And so now this, we'll just stop here. This famous portion of scripture that we have here, the greatest commandment, you've probably heard this, maybe you've heard this in school before. The teacher will put it on their board the first day that you walk into class. This is the golden rule. This is what you do. And so this is what we have here. And we have this famous question and it's found and also in the, the books of Mark and, and Luke. And it mentions some familiar people here right up front. Some familiar people or some familiar people groups and the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees. And it specifically mentions this lawyer. So this lawyer is an expert in the law, the Old Testament law, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live. And so now Jesus, he deals with these people a lot. He deals with these people a lot over and over again in his ministry. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are mostly characterized by Jesus as being people who, yes, again, they have this great knowledge of the law. There's no denying that in scripture. They know the law. Oftentimes that's how they're presented. They know this law and they strictly observe this law. Yet they have what's called this misplaced telos or telos, which is a Greek, Greek for purpose. They have a wrong purpose, a misplaced aim in living out this great law that they know. They know it well, but their living out of this law is very misplaced. And you can actually probably see in your Bible, if you're there, the entire chapter over, one chapter over, and Matthew 23 displays seven woes that Jesus has against these people because of this misplaced living out of the law that they have. 
the means to their end has no evidence of love. The means to their end of living out this law, love is, is not found anywhere there. And these are the people that are about to ask Jesus this question in the scripture that we have this morning, our question of consideration. So let's go to verse 36, continuing. And they say with this question in verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So knowing a bit about these Pharisees, and their lack of love in what they do. Again, their motivation, their telos is, is not to love. Their telos is to just live out this law the best that they can to, to be seen by other people, to do it in such a legalistic way and the way that they live out this written law. And they actually, in doing this and, and asking Jesus this question, they introduce a crucial observation about what love is not. So if we're going to look at love, if it's a common practice and thought of, if you want to know what something is all about, the true worth of an idea, then observe its opposite. And so first, what point of love is actually looking at what it's not? That can be for us this morning. Looking at love, we can actually look at what it's not. And these Pharisees, through the Pharisees, we can see that by spiritual practices, spiritual practices by themselves are not a measure of maturity. In other words, coming to church regularly, making sure you read your Bible consistently, tithing, praying before bedtime, those are wonderful spiritual practices. Those practices are important, no doubt, but they are not a measure of your spiritual maturity. You can do those things, and I, I hope that you do, because again, they're not wrong, but those are not the measure of your spiritual maturity. So I, I like to golf, right? I have a, a small putting mat in my office. If you've ever been up there, I've got clubs in there. I've got like 10 pictures of golf clubs hanging on my wall. My wife jokes with me. She goes in my office. She's like, you have more pictures of golf clubs than you do your family. What's up with that? So I got to get more pictures of my family. And because golf is fun to me, I go to the golf course. I primarily just hit at the range. I have a range membership at Franklin Golf Course because I can go at lunch, hit a bucket of balls and, and come back and it's awesome. And, and now when I'm at the range, I've gone to the range so many times that when I'm at the range, I'm usually hitting the ball pretty well. I'm feeling good about myself. I'm feeling like I'm Tiger Woods when I'm up there at the range. There's no denying that. My drives are crisp. My wedges are going exactly where I want them to. In my mind, I've got my PGA Tour card. I'm ready to go. But sometimes something horrible happens when I go to play an actual match on an actual course with actual other people. Because when I'm on the, on the range, I've got my headphones in. You know, I'm dreaming about playing on tour. I'm doing this. But when I go to an actual course and play with other people, I start to play like garbage. And it's the weirdest thing. I start to play like garbage and I promise myself when I get home, I'm going to sell my clubs on eBay immediately. And I'm going to find a new hobby. I'm getting rid of my clubs. I'm selling my clubs on eBay. And I realized my consistently good shots on the range are superficial in, in a way because my shots up there are not a measure of my real golf game. It's, it's, it's not at all. And just as those spiritual practices listed above and, and that we mentioned are not a measure of my maturity in Christ. So listen to how Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as so to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that. It, again, spiritual practices and, and these spiritual motives that we, we have, they, they hold no weight if they are without love. If love is not the driving force, if love is not our telos, our, our aim, our end purpose in doing these practices, then those practices that we do become irrelevant because they're not backed with love. And so our, our telos, our true purpose then is becoming a person of love. That's what it has to be. Our true end goal, our true aim in life with Christ has to be becoming a person of love. So let's continue. We left off with the question being posed by this lawyer trying to trip Jesus up. Hey, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Let's hear what, what you have to say because I know the law, but let's see. You're a great teacher, I've heard. Let's see what you answer is the greatest commandment that we can have. And so in verse 37, we have an answer in part, part of the whole answer that Christ wants to give here in these verses. So verse 37 says this in Jesus' reply. Jesus replied, love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So there you go. The, the answer is love. You shall love. But what about that love, right? What is that love? And so let's continue to look at that before we talk about loving God. We need to define again, like I said up front, we, we have to define what love is biblically because there's some jacked up definitions of love that you and I know and that we get from this world. And maybe even think back to last week, maybe we get some jacked up definitions or views of love based of, from our family of origin. So we, we have some jacked up definitions of love. That's why Billy Ray Cyrus had to write my achy breaky heart because we got some jacked up definitions of what love is. So there's a gigantic difference. There's a huge, huge difference between what we say love is cultural love and God's love. Cultural love goes something like this. So I love pizza. Go figure, right? I'm a youth pastor. That's my diet, pizza and di uh, Mountain Dew, pizza and Mountain Dew. But I love pizza. My favorite pizza around town is Papa's Pizza. Amen, hallelujah. Call me redneck or whatever you want. Your words don't hurt me. Papa's is where it's at. But when I say that I love Papa's Pizza, what I'm really saying is I, I like it. I, I desire that. I, I want to take it and I, I want to consume it and not give back to it. My love for pizza is very self-serving. And in a more serious manner, think about this relationally. Think about how you and I do this with other people. We do this in our relationships and especially do this in, in dating relationships. Sometimes this even happens in, in marriage. Our culture has little distinction between love and lust. And in, a, in another way, when we say that we love that other person, we, we can say that all we want, but our, our self-centered actions in doing that, it becomes more of what we can get from that other person. What can I get from that other person? It's feeling-based. Again, what can I get from them? Why, why aren't they making me happy anymore? Why, why is this happening? How can I make them somehow please me and, and not give back? So it's no surprise 
When we think about love in this way and how it's so self-serving, it's no surprise that our, our teens are, are struggling, that our, that our teens are struggling with pornography like never before in, in history. It, it should be no surprise that our divorce rates are, are through the roof, even among Christ-professing couples. It's no surprising to realize that when we recognize that we do in part, and we can in part, have a messed up view of love. So what we need is this, we need agape love. Spiritual maturity is centered around what we are gonna call and what we know in scripture as agape love. So if you guys would humor me for a second, I I wanna become part Greek teacher here because in the Greek text, there are a couple words, there are actually several words in the Greek for love with different meanings. But in the New Testament, we primarily see two types of, of love mentioned in the Greek. And so the first word that we have is agapao or agape love, as you probably heard it. This is the unconditional love, God the Father's love, a pure love, a selfless love, love that even empowers you and I to love our enemies, if you've heard that in scripture, right? That's the love that empowers us to even do that. It's John three sixteen love. For God so agapao, the world in the Greek. For God so loved the world unconditionally, what? That he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's Romans 5, 8 love. But God shows his agapao for us, his agape love for us unconditionally in this, that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. And the second most common love that we see in the Greek, as far as the New Testament goes, is phileo love. And phileo love is brotherly love. This type of love is most often shown with close friendships. So a friend that you might have, a a brotherly love, family even, is, is defined in this phileo love. It's shown towards people, phileo love is, that we feel warm and affectionate to. Okay, I like you, you know, I like Troy. Phileo love, Troy, okay? This is the type of love that we're talking about. So this is not a love that we would show towards our enemies. It's not like agape love. And so there's a, there's a specific interaction between Jesus and Peter that I wanna show you in John 21, 15 through 17, that showcases this big difference between these types of love and gives us another point on how God's love is the measure of our maturity. What love are we supposed to operate in? So here it is, John 21, 15 through 17. I'll read this in the original first. And it says this, when they had finished breakfast, and this is after Christ had had returned and and, um, been raised from the dead, and he's returning to his disciples, and he has this interaction with Peter, and he says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him again, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Jesus keeps asking him three times, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And so now using those words that we mentioned, the Greek words for love, the Greek translation, I'm just gonna insert the original words there 
in the scripture, agapao or agape and phileo. And I want you to listen to how this conversation goes now. When, he, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? In John 21, 15 and 16, Jesus uses the Greek word agape. So Peter, do you agapao me? Do you love me unconditionally, Peter? This is what I'm asking of you. Do you love me unconditionally? Both times, as Jesus asked him in, in, with agapao, agape, do you love me that way, Peter? Both times, in 15 and 16, Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He doesn't use agape. He uses phileo. Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you like a brother. You, you know that I love you like a friend. And the third time, though, now, Jesus, when he asks, do you love me? In John 21, 17, he uses the word phileo. So Peter, Peter, do you, do you, do you phileo me? Do you, you love me like a brother? You love me like a friend? And Peter once more responds with the same, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you like a brother. You know that I phileo you. You know that we're close. You know that we're like family. Why are you asking me this? And the point in Jesus using the different Greek words for love shows that Jesus was trying to stretch Peter to move from phileo love to agape love. Peter, I know that you love me like a brother. I know that, but to be my servant, Peter, to be my disciple and to be my disciple maker as I'm about to send you in the great commission, to be that, you need to love me and you need to love my sheep with agape love. You have to make that move, Peter. And if Jesus wanted to make sure Peter understood this vital charge he was tasking him with and the ultimate reason for it, to follow him, and to give God glory. And so there's our connection with those Greek words in mind and that type of love. There's our connection for mature, maturing spiritually, meaning we cannot fully obey or minister rightly, be emotionally sound, break away from our family of origin until we understand and operate in agape love. It's the same thing he was telling to Peter, and that might be where you're at right now. Hey, you're in phileo love you're operating in this love that is, is fine, but until you operate and understand agape love, unconditional love, how you're supposed to love the Father, then you, you won't be able to fully obey or minister rightly, be emotionally sound, break away again from that family of origin until you operate there in agape love. And so to keep this going, I wanna revisit Matthew 22. We've got the what settled. We've got this love kind of broken down. We've got the who part in this is, is God. Obviously, again, that's, that's self-explanatory. But the end of verse 37, it says, it says this, right? With, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So you're supposed to love with me. You're supposed to love God with, with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. So what about the how portion of this? If we understand what love is, if we can kind of get a grasp on what agape love is, especially as we know God and his love, then how do we love how do we love people? How do, how do we love God now with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind? The first thing that we need to know is that the components listed there, heart, soul, and mind, are not listed to represent these rigid components of human existence, but are listed to represent the whole person. 
So, so you entirely, you as a whole person, not separate components, but all of you. So Jesus is saying, love the Father with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. He's saying every part of you as a whole person should be devoted to the Father. So how, how do we love God? We do it by this. We give ourselves to God completely for his intended purposes. And, and I understand this is where it gets messy for us. We, we love ourselves. We love our schedules. We love some of our habits. We love comfort. Comfort is a hard thing to, to get over. I was having a conversation with my wife the other day at lunch, like, you know, this week I was preparing for this and part of, parts of me just wants to be lazy. We struggle with that. I, sometimes I just want comfort. I just wanna be good. I just wanna sit down and relax. And we love comfort, we love ourselves. So there's a quick answer here to how we love God. The answer finds itself in getting away from the love of self. And the Bible makes that very clear. Like Pastor Ben mentioned last week, the first week actually, someone is waiting at the door to meet you where you are. Someone is waiting at the door to meet you to fill those desires that you have. Most of the time, the person who we want to answer this door is the version of ourselves that we want. Right, we, we hope the person answering the door is the better version of ourselves. We, we wanna be more successful. If I could just be more successful, like this other person, why is my life not like that? Somebody answered the door. I want, I want me to answer the door that's a more successful me. We wanna stop struggling with money. We want to beat that addiction. Why am I struggling again this week with this same sin that keeps coming up and up and up in my life? Please, better version of myself, answer that door. We want to bring our family back together. We want the prodigal to come home. We want that family member, we want that son or daughter to come home and start living the way that God tells them they should live. And we want to try our best to make that happen, hoping that in our efforts we'll open the door to a better life, our, our best life now, the best version of us. But God's word says that's not it. That's not it. You're not going to be able to open the door. Being spiritually mature in love means self checks itself at the door. If you want to love God and agape love, love has to check love. At, love has to check itself at the door. Self has to check self at the door. And so Pastor Sam challenged us with these verses at the beginning of the year, the very first Sunday of this year, talking about there being a cost. If we're going to deny self, there's a cost. We have to know that cost of being a disciple of Jesus. And so Matthew 16, 24 through 25 says, Jesus told his disciples, guess what? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then Luke, 20, Luke 14, 26 goes further in saying, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. You, you cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. So what I want you to do with this, call up your mom, call up your child, call up your brother, call up your sister, whoever, get them on the phone. And when they say, what's up? You say, I hate you. And then you slam the phone down. That's what I want you to do. No, I'm just kidding. Don't you dare do that. But that's loving God. Love in the truest sense demands abandonment of self in order to follow God. And God alone is the adequate incentive for us to get rid of ourselves. He is the adequate incentive for such a radical abandonment of self. And so obviously we're not hating 
people specifically, just love less, these people in terms of your relationship with God. And so Jesus takes away, I love it. Jesus takes away any built-in excuse that we have or we could have in choosing not to love him. There's, there's no built-in excuse here. We can't say that we don't know what it takes to love God when he spells it out so clearly. Right up front, he lets us know, to love me is to give your entire self to me. That's what you have to do. That's what you have to start working on through me. You have to give him your finances. You have to give him your health. You have to give him your marriage. You have to give him your children. You have to give him your time. You have to give him your thoughts. All of it. This is how you love me. He says clearly, heart, soul, and mind, your entirety. This is the great and first commandment. And with God's love defined and in action, full surrender to the Father's will, Jesus goes a step further. He lists another commandment in the scripture, another part of displaying his glory. So Matthew 22, the rest of this, at least till 39. 22, 37 through 39, he said to them, and... You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so same question here. Who are we to love? Who do we love with the example of love that God has given us? We love our neighbor. So we love God and now we love our neighbor. But let's pose this in true Jeopardy fashion. Who is my neighbor? This is a a theological question which has been tossed around a ton. Who is my neighbor? Who is this person? And and we may think that our neighbor is our literal neighbor, the person across the street. That's my neighbor. Or we might say that it's people who are near and dear to us. It's, again, maybe those phileo people, those people that are our family, those people that are like a brother or sister to, to you, right? It's the people that are near and dear to us. Those are the people that are my neighbor. And there are also those who believe that the goal, even if you want to think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, that the, the goal of the Good Samaritan parable is to teach that someone can only be your neighbor when, like the Samaritan, you are in a position to do good. When, like the priest of the Levite, you don't have the means to do the good, then you are free from any responsibility. You, you may look the other way and you are free and you are able to pass. So, okay, I, I have the means to, this is what we do. Okay, I have the means to, to help you. I have the means to help this person, that group of people. So those, those people are my neighbor. And, and okay, well, I don't have the means to help you. I don't have the means to help those people. So uh, I just can't. And those people aren't my neighbor because I don't have the means to help them. So it can be a, little, a legitimate question. Who do I express God's love to. But thankfully, and as always, God's word leaves us without excuse. There's no built-in excuse here either. So what I'd ask you to do is think about the 10 commandments. I think we could all agree that a summary, a good summary of the 10 commandments would be to love God and love your neighbor. And those two aspects, loving God and loving your neighbor are so intertwined that the first is, precondition, is a precondition for the second. In other words, whoever claims to love God, whoever truly claims to love God, guess what? They should also be loving their neighbor. And as John, or 1 John 4.11 states, Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. So the, the commandments to love our neighbor and the commandment to love our neighbor 
uh, thankfully, is not undefined. It isn't detached from the, the contents, as you'll see in a second, of these ten commandments. And the commandment to love one's neighbor is actually defined and is actually guided by the Ten Commandments. Within the Ten Commandments, within these Ten Commandments, the, the questions of how do I do this, how do I love my neighbor, and who is my neighbor are clearly explained. So I, I wanted to have you guys check this out. There's something interesting that we can do here with the Ten Commandments. I want to read and show you the Ten Commandments with the word and with the idea of neighborly love attached at the forefront. So it goes something like this. Neighborly love doesn't withhold the truth about the one true God from others, but rather testifies unashamedly. Neighborly love doesn't present false images of God to others. Neighborly love uses God's name with reverence in the presence of others so that they too can be struck by awe for his holiness. Neighborly love prevents me from being a stumbling block for others towards observance of the Lord's day. Neighborly love honors the authority God has placed in my neighbor Neighborly love protects and respects the lives of others. Neighborly love doesn't betray marital love, neither does it infringe on the relationships of others. Neighborly love steals from no one and protects the property of all. Neighborly love is truthful to all without partiality. Neighborly love withholds egocentric desires that are harmful to others. You see what happens there? Whenever I do these things to anyone, I am displaying neighborly love, as in mathematics, the reverse of these equations, the reverse of an equation should also be true. So anyone who then I display this love as commanded by God is considered to be my neighbor. And by this, the Ten Commandments, again, it, it clearly defines the who of who is my neighbor and it clearly defines how we are to treat one another. And John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how does this connect to our spiritual maturity? Well, we can certainly say this, that spiritual maturity can be recognized by how you and I love our neighbor. So spiritual maturity can definitely be recognized by how you love your neighbor. And one last verse here. One last question and then a, a challenge and and Matthew 22, and we'll highlight 40, but we'll just read through 36, 36 through 40 to get the whole picture here. It says, teacher, again, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 40, on these two commandments, depend all the law and all the prophets. And there's a miraculous, a miraculous kingdom life change that Jesus initiates here. And this is the why. Why do we love? Why do we love God? And why do we have to display or why do we need to display his love to our neighbor? And so in power, 1 John 4.19 says it very simply. We love because he first loved us. And Christian love is a gift from God, demonstrated supremely in the cross. This is what God did. Again, that agape love in John 3, 16 that we mentioned. In agape love, God sent his son. In agape love, Jesus lived out the perfect life for us. In agape love, he went to the cross and died, taking our sin and handing you and I righteousness. 
in agape love. In agape love, he rose from the dead to give us agape love with eternity attached. And life now lived and operated in agape love. And so let love, please let love be the measure of your spiritual maturity. This is the only way that those dots have a place to connect in the first place. Those are the dots. Those are the only way that we even connect the dots. And so each week in this series, we're ending with a goal. Pastor Ben has done this the last two weeks. And so we've had a goal and, and this week we'll have a goal. And my goal from me to you this week is this. In 2023, 2023, this year, I will make God's love the defining characteristic of my existence. I will make God's love the defining characteristic of my existence. And so if you want to take a picture of this, please feel free to do so. Or this will probably be on our socials this week if you want to look back to this. But that's my desire. I want to be about my father's business. I want to live and I want to operate my life in agape love. Love that is so undeniable in action that others would come to me asking me what that's all about. And me being able to give them a reason, an explanation for the hope that is within me. God's love facilitates that life change. The Holy Spirit guides that obedience. And then we want you also to write down your distractions. So what's distracting you from doing that? What can you see in your life that could be, uh, that could be a takeaway from, from you not doing that? And so these are my distractions. And then what are your fears? My fear is my, is my failure of this. My fear is, is disappointing people. It, it all seems like a, a daunting task. I mean, people are, are hard to love. <laughs> If you didn't know, people are hard to love. And I, I struggle with, again, wanting comfort over taking that effort, over counting that cost of being a disciple sometimes. I just, I just want to be comfortable. Love is hard. Being a disciple is costly. Operating in agape love requires sacrifice. But Jesus honors the work that we do in his name. He supplies the need and is able to operate within our failures as we run to him with our failures, asking him for help. And so these are my fears. And each week we wanna give you a verse or verses, verses that can be yours. And our verses this week are this, 1 John 4, 9 through 11, Romans 5, 8, and John 13, 34 through 35. And just like Last week, what I want to do here to close out is I want to read those verses over you. I want to read those verses as we pray together. So if you could just close your eyes and bow your heads, giving this moment to your heavenly father without any distractions. And so I'm going to read this over you right now. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you loved one another.